Businesses thrive by knowing customer insights because today's insights are tomorrow's facts. At iResearch, we live and breathe insights. And despite searching high and low, we were unable to find a customer insights podcast that answers one of the most important questions in business. Why do customers do what they do? So we launched one. Hi, I'm your host, Darshan Mehta. On this episode, we're going to be talking to Gail Kahn. She is the CEO of FiPower, a market research consultancy company that's been doing a lot of interesting stuff in the quantitative space, and especially in the legal field. Prior to that, she was a co-founder of MindClick, an executive at Yahoo, and also a consultant at IBM. Gail, I want to welcome you, Gail Kahn from FiPower, and it's a pleasure to talk to you on Getting to AHA. Good morning. How are you? Excellent. You know, I like to start off with my guests since we're always getting to the aha moment. I'd like to know some of the aha moments in your life, in your personal life, from the beginning to now, that have put you on this path to where you are. And you've been doing market research for how many years now? 23. So I suspect you've had a few aha moments to get you here. Maybe you can share some of those aha moments with us. That'd be great. Sure. Well, what got me in the market research business is kind of funny. I had been working at a startup at the time in the late 90s called Broadcast.com. Mm-hmm. And Mark Cuban was our CEO. And uh, we were a streaming media company, the first streaming media company. And it was kind of a rock and roll time because it was the Wild West. I mean, nobody, what was streaming media? What were banner ads? You know, all this was all brand new. And it was a fun job, but it was a grind. We worked like maniacs, you know, I mean, you know, every night till midnight kind of thing. It was just really pretty crazy. So we had done the Victoria's Secret runway show and kind of broke, literally broke the internet. I mean, you know, all the servers blew up and you couldn't see the thing, but it actually became a Harvard Business School case study about what went down. And we were very excited about getting more money into the company. And at the time, there was a woman on Wall Street who's still on Wall Street, a woman named Mary Meeker, and she was our investment advisor. And she got us to the table and we got Yahoo to buy the company for $5.7 billion, okay, which is a hefty sum of money. And I was in the room when we went public there was Mark, there was his partner, there was, you know, Jerry Yang. I mean, it was just like, you know, really heady time. And then we get bought and you realize that even though we got this infusion of money, you know, what happened is they start to clean house at broadcast.com. So a lot of people leave. Todd Wagner was the co-founder with Kubin and he leaves. So, you know, there's a lot of changes. And then you think that, you know, Yahoo's going to have this great vision about what to do with the company. They try selling companies streams. They try doing all these things. They try doing a lot of stuff. And essentially what really happened was they squashed the technology, just didn't really develop it. And so we kind of got absorbed into Yahoo doing whatever, you know, and I left kind of like within the first year and a half that I was absorbed. The year before, Yahoo had bought another company called GeoCities. Now, GeoCities was the first personalized homepage, okay? So they had a million unique users, and the technology was in HTML5. That's a long time ago, right? And when you think 
about it, what they did was they never pushed that technology any further. So they could have switched it over and given people access to the latest technology, right? But instead, a couple of years ago, I think they closed it. You know, it's just, it vanished. So they had a million, a million and a half, whatever, unique users. So I looked at these two positions and GeoCities was bought for like at least $4 billion. So when you do the math of this kind of money, it just blew my mind that you could spend, you know, close to $9 billion or something and not do anything. And I just was like, I can't deal with that. I mean, that to me, you could have given everybody in the world money and, you know, had left over. I started to realize that, you know, and obviously I'd been in consulting at IBM, companies have really big issues about when they do things and how do they know what they're doing? And so research for me became like, of course, we have to research before you do something, before you make these giant monumental mistakes. Because when you start thinking in those terms, you start seeing like, wow, companies do this all the time. They build something, they don't know what to do with it. And then it blows up. I mean, IBM is also a perfect example. You know, they have a million patents that would not have been a Microsoft had there not been an IBM patent. You know, let's be honest. So anyway, that's kind of was for me a big aha moment, realizing that companies make monumental mistakes and need help figuring out what they're doing. Have you figured out since then, what are the top three reasons why companies make these monumental mistakes? Well, because companies, you know, are disjointed. I mean, particularly when they get really large, it's hard to run a big company with lots of divisions and different people. And there's a lot of cooks in the broth. The CEO does one thing. He has a short tenure. I mean, you know, unless the CEO is returning very nice investments to the board, even if it's not a publicly traded company, if he's not getting really solid profits every quarter, he doesn't, he's not there that long. Nobody's anywhere that long. So you have turnover at all the high levels of a company, right? And then you got to figure that, how is everybody going to make it? You've got to be lucky with the mix of people you get in a company where the hiring is so good that everybody's rowing the boat together, or you just have some really, really good people that make sure the boat is rowing in the right direction. It's hard. It's very hard to not make mistakes, even when it's a mature company. I mean, companies just have problems. I mean, everybody hides their problems. It's the best thing to do, right? It's easier to hide. I mean, if you're a publicly traded company, it's much harder because, you know, the newspaper covers you and everybody knows what's going on. But I mean, let's face it, everybody makes giant mistakes and they can't be undone. I mean, sometimes they just can't be. They do say, if you want to improve your success rate, double your failure rate, right? But I think you're saying something else. I think you're saying, if I hear correctly, that a lot of companies spend a lot of money going in a direction, and the next thing you know, all this money is for naught, and what they pursued is not developed or implemented. And what I heard from you is a combination of communication, but also leadership. Is it both, or is it one or the other that's more of the issue? Well, I think it's both. And I also think market conditions change, too. I mean, you know, things that are out of your control. I mean, first of all, there's competition. You don't know everything that your competitors are doing in your space. That's number one. And market conditions. I mean, you may come out with something that you think is so hot and the market has actually just lost it or your raw materials become too expensive. I mean, there are just so many factors today. And then you have to rely on, you know, your salespeople out there to go sell your product. and. You know, I mean, they're just human beings that they came from one company and now they come to yours and now they're there to make these 
quotas and you know there's a lot of factors and you know i mean also there's a lot of luck too so that's what inspired you to get into research and tell me the type of research you've been doing over the years and also maybe the type of research you're doing more of these days well we do mostly quantitative research so we built our own software and we have our own online platform and what we do is we do very creative surveys and that they're all visual, they talk, we can animate things, we can play videos. We've always played in the show me game. We always play in engagement. So our studies are really a combination of quant and qual, but they're mostly quantitative, obviously. We can do behavioral measures. So we create based on the problem because we have to engage the respondent. The respondent has to understand complex issues. Again, if you ask me, I do legal research. So these are sometimes abstract to people. How do we make something come alive? And we really make it very pedagogic in that we make sure everyone is engaged and they understand through the survey. And then we also ask everybody, this is a trait that we do in every survey we do, is we ask them, how was your experience? Did you understand? Was it good? Was it bad? You know, we ask them all these follow-up questions at the end. And we get people tell us, can we join your panel? We obviously don't have a panel, but... The fact that people really have a good experience is very important to us, that they really get it and have sort of fun while they're taking a survey. So I know you have a background in movies and television. So has this shaped you in your quantitative initiative in terms of the surveys and how you do them and everything? And if so, how has it shaped it? It's funny you say that because the head of production comes out of the television and movie space. So, yeah, I mean, very much so, because we know that most people are visual learners, most people. And if I show you an apple, I get it's an apple, but which apple? So if I show you it's green, it's easier to understand if I show it to you. Because if you just say, let's talk about apples, there's 50 million kinds. So if I I show you everything, you really see it with warts and all. And it gets people to relate better to the information. The other thing is... One of the things that we started doing a number of years ago is we do not rely on people reading the survey because we know people don't read. So we just assume that they're not. So we can read a survey to you. It could be read. Yeah. So not by a person, you mean audio? I mean, an automated voice or actually a real person? We record a voice. It could be male, female. We could do this in any language. We have it read to you because Mm -hmm. if people don't pay attention, it could be read to them. And sometimes people hear things differently than when they read them. And have you seen a difference in response rates or even the level of answers and detail that they give you? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, because a lot of times you hear things and it helps you conjure the information better. It depends on the survey and why we're going to do that and if it's needed. Oh, absolutely. All these techniques are there to help the respondent engage better with the information because people are distracted. One of the things that we do is keep these surveys very short. We are known for a 10-minute survey, and people go, oh, my God, it's so short. It's 10 minutes. But because it shows you things, it explains how something works. It's very interesting. And so you can pack a lot into 10 minutes. I think people get more bored if it's just a bunch of questions. This is not the SAT. People took those already. And if you don't get them connected to the information, there is really a big drop in attention and how they respond to the questions. So it's about keeping them attentive through the whole survey. 
Now, I know you're a big believer and advocate of storytelling. So tell me, how does storytelling play a role in your quantitative work? Well, it's a combination of, first of all, you got to write a very good survey. That's another thing. You know, it can't be redundant. It has to be lean and it has to get all the issues into that survey. So to write the survey is writing the story, right? I mean, I'm not the person who writes them, but it's a real practice as to how to get a lean machine going. So writing the good story and then obviously evoking that with images. So it really is very entertaining because even if I'm showing you boots, I'm turning the boots, you can zero in on the boots. Maybe I'll have you build the boot. Maybe I'll have you build your ideal boot if I need that. Or in a car, I'll have you change the colors or change the doors. I'll give you tools. So it becomes an interactive, completely interactive approach to doing the survey. And you're answering questions as you're doing it. You're moving parts around. You can rank things, but you move them. Everything becomes a little bit of a dance within this 10-minute time frame. So it is telling a story. There is a beginning, and then we thank you, and we ask you questions like, how'd you do at the end? So give me an example of how typical questions are in a typical survey and how they're different in your survey with storytelling. I look at other people's work and I'm trying to evoke a lot of realism in my surveys. So I'm not putting clip art in necessarily. I'm also giving the user more power and that they're just not only answering questions, but a lot of what we do, and I said this before, is I ask them to build things. So they are literally building, just say, a product, an ad. They can do that. We did a project for like a casual dining restaurant. What we did was we gave people four images. They could pick an image, you know, a blank image, and then they could drag and drop into that image, which picture seemed interesting to them. And then we gave them language sets. So each language set, meaning handcrafted, cooked to order, brought to you fresh, you know, things that were in the same category, right? Absolutely. And we let them choose whichever category meant something to them. Because again, what we're trying to do, I'm not pushing them to do something. I'm asking them what resonates with them. So the more they give me what is important to them, it sort of sticks in their head better and it's something relatable. And at the end, after four or five questions, they built their ideal ad. And after they looked at it, they could decide they didn't like a part of it, click on it, go back to the original question, change it, and I'd ask them why they changed it, and then it hit that new ad. They're involved in the storytelling because they're the leader of their story, right? They're answering the question. They can change the question, and yet they're building this information. And we obviously look at why they changed things, when they changed it. Did they do this one time, then they did it another? And then, you know, we do things like matching subsets. We take different groups. So, yeah, we do a lot of cool stuff, but I don't know if everybody does that. I really don't know everybody else's practice, but I can assume that everybody's playing to the level we're playing. I don't know. So I'm curious, when you say you're limiting your service to 10 minutes, when you invoke storytelling, so do you have more or fewer questions than, let's say, a typical 10-minute survey? No, I think it's probably the same amount of questions, but we don't pad a survey. One of the things I find, because I take other people's surveys sometimes too, is that they're so boring. They keep asking the same question over and over again, and it just a slightly different form. And 
first of all, legal research, that would get thrown out instantaneously. You cannot do that at all. There are best practices kind of thing. And that, you know, the judge will read two questions and go, okay, you're done. You can't even debate it. You're out. It's over. Finito. Okay. Because we're trained with that sort of mindset, we write like a moving train kind of questionnaire and it has to form together because nobody wants to be bored. And you have to realize the respondents are regular people. And if you don't capture them in the beginning of that survey, they're just going to be clicking for speed to get through. And you can actually see because when data is live and you're looking at the answers coming in every hour when something's in the field, you can see if people are getting it, not getting it. See, so again, let me interrupt myself here for a minute. In legal research, you do a pre-launch, okay? So you do the study with a very small group of people just to understand how you're doing, you know, are we going to get an answer that we need? Because then you can change the survey without going bigger because, you know, what if we need to change things? You don't do that in regular research. Nobody does that because they don't want to spend the money and the stakes are not the same. But when you learn the best practice to understand how to write that survey to the maximum benefit, that helps you inform the research you do in corporation because you realize that the way you write that survey will absolutely change the way you're going to get those answers for maximum benefit. So sometimes one of the things that we do is we do things backwards. Normally, people would say, tell me what's relevant. Maybe we're going to start with what's irrelevant because if we can take away the clutter, do you see what I'm saying? You take away everything, then you are left with what is important. So we play with techniques all the time because you've got to get people to focus. It's not an easy thing. I can't stress this enough. I mean, you know, I get distracted. Everybody does. And people are on their phone and then there's noise and there's this and then the dog came or, you know, whatever. Or you need your audience so desperately to help you try and figure things out particularly when you're launching a product, right? Or you're trying to fix something. And I was on the phone with a client from a very big conglomerate the other day, and we were laughing because she said, what about the word new? Do you want to use the word new on something? And I almost fell off my chair. I said, are you kidding? (laughs) You're laughing. But it's true. It's like, does it mean new, brand new, or new and improved? What does new mean? You know, language is so important to the consumer. You know, it's so crazy out there, and you got to be very clear. So having done research for as long as you have, what are the top three tips you would give someone if they're doing a quantitative survey? First of all, where you start is understanding your sample. Because if you don't get the right people doing your survey, it doesn't matter what you ask them, you're not going to yield anything that you need. You know, it's not going to be relevant to you or your product or anything. So understanding where to get the right sample. And by the way, not all sample is created equally. I could just do a whole talk on you get what you pay for because there's very cheap sample that could cost a penny a name. And then there is sample that costs $150 a name. <laughs> There's a reason it's different. And I'm not saying um, it's all about cost. It's just understanding the balance of what you're trying to do with what you need, because getting that fit is very essential. So I think that's important. I think having to work with people who understand how to write a very good questionnaire, that's also very important, because without the questionnaire, you have nothing. And not 
boring people. It's a really hard factor to keep people focused on the salient information and not to pad things. You know, unfortunately, in some industries, they're very used to 20, 30 minute surveys online. I don't know if I have the attention span for 30 minutes online. It's a long time, you know, unless I'm in a self-driving car and stuck in traffic. Maybe, but I don't know if I could sit for 30 minutes answering questions. This is, again, not the SAT. So it's understanding how to do that and engage people. The second point you made about writing a good survey, are there any resources or tips that you can point someone to and how to learn to write better survey questions? I think there's probably a lot of stuff online. I mean, there's obviously organizations, there's SMR and Quirks and, you know, all these. And in the United States, there's chapters of, you know, market research in every region. And, you know, there's a lot of people who've been in market research space for 20, 30 years. I mean, they do hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of surveys. Surveys are not polls and polls are not surveys. I mean, it's not the same thing. There's people who have PhDs in market research. I'm not saying just because the most educated people, just because they have a PhD, they're better, but there is an art to finding a survey. They're teaching it at schools. I mean, you know, there's universities that do it. So follow people who are very well versed in writing a survey. Ask if you could see their work and you develop the skill. Even 10 minutes is a long time. So, I mean, I think follow other people and see what they do. And I know that there's obviously loads of research. There's a load of academic papers on how to write a survey. So we talked about you doing legal research. And can you maybe tell us the distinction between regular market research and how legal research really is a completely different animal? Well, first of all, we are an intermediary. So there's us. There's an expert witness who's somebody who normally has a PhD in like psychology or sociology. And a lot of these people also have tremendous expertise in just say chemical engineering. They're experts in a particular field. So they become the person who can help take your research and defend it in court. They are trying to find an answer to something. So we bridge the gap. We are working with them because we are the survey people. They are not a survey company. So we write the survey for them and obviously the law firm. So our team is the law firm, the expert witness in us. And we usually do phone calls, all three of us together. First, we are sent the complaint. So it's a legal document from any federal court in the United, you know, we, we work mostly in the United States in the sense, but we get a, a document from the court. It's a what the complaint is. We read the complaint. And then once we're versing the complaint, we then start talking to the expert witness and the lawyers and we start developing what we're going to do. It's a larger team than we normally work in. So I'm curious, we talked about short attention spans, and I think you're right. And also there's an overabundance of surveys now because there's so many tools out there so everyone's writing a survey so how have you dealt with this challenge now in the industry with attention span and an overabundance of surveys so every factor that i talked about before like making a short survey knowing how to write a good survey not only is there tons of surveys but if i i think there's like tens of thousands that go out every day tens of thousands of surveys also the other thing is to be distinct in your survey. That's why we have the tools that we do because we don't ever do the same survey twice. Whatever we put out is not like something we did before. In fact, one of the things we do is we're constantly building new tools. Again, because I own my software, I can build something I've never done before. 
based on a problem that we think, oh, this is going to be a very interesting way to do it. We have a creative director, which is very unusual for market research company, because we want to build that interface in such a way, and obviously programmers. So if the creative director goes, wow, why don't we solve it this way and let's build a new way of looking at an app or something, then you know he sends that brief to the programmers and then the programmers program and then we write obviously you know around that. So we are constantly shaking up literally all the time what we're doing because we know that we are competing against an overabundance of surveys. And then again, if you go back to the same well over and over again with a survey to the same sample houses doing the same survey, you're just going to get nothing after a while because people are professional takers. Again, we are watching when surveys come in, when they're live, the sample all the time. We monitor on the weekends. We monitor at night. We're monitoring. Okay. So we catch things. We go back to sample houses all the time saying, hey, what's going on here? This isn't right. Or this group is not happening, particularly when you're doing like a tracking study and you have to get very specific groups of people. We are watching that. And certain groups don't perform like others. I mean, it's much harder to talk to younger people, young Hispanic men, African-American young men, you know, you have to really see what's going on. I don't know if everybody's doing that. So to make sure that you're engaging your people and keeping it really insightful to that group is part of your job as a survey writer, because otherwise it's just drivel. There's no point in doing a survey. So what are some of the challenges you're facing these days in writing surveys and doing projects for clients? Oh, gosh. Well, it depends on the kind of company. I mean, we work like just say when we work with, you know, certain types of companies, you know, ad agencies, for instance, not that I want to bash them or anything, but, you know, just corporate companies. There's so many people who want to throw questions into the sink. So you get these, you know, they come to you and they want this and they want that and the answer this and question this. And the thing is like, you know, can wrap around the Empire State Building 42 times. You know, you have to say this is probably two or three projects. And it's not that I want to milk them for two or three projects because that's not the point. The point is you can't do that all in one project because the people are going to rebel. They're not going to get the attention span and you're not going to get all that. So let's try and parse down what is you're trying to do in this study. And if you're happy with that study, then, you know, let's see what's next. But I think it's very important to hone the information. You can't overload people. And that's a big problem. People just this department wants that. And can we have a couple here and that, you know, marketing wants this and the salesperson might want that and product wants this and, you know, all that kind of stuff. So you have to kind of say, hey, 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 you know, we talked about being pedagogic in a very pedagogic way. You know, you want to teach them, but you don't want to rain on their parade because they all want that information. It just can't be done in one study. So what role are you seeing AI and, you know, chat GPT playing and survey creation now? I know companies are starting to do it a lot more, and we've been asked about, are we doing AI? We, at this point, have not started using AI. I guess it could help you write a questionnaire. But again, I think you still have to take everything with a grain of salt and sort of use it as a jumping off point. It might be able to give you some holes. I mean, I've been using AI personally just since Christmas. And sometimes it's really good. And sometimes it says, I can't answer this question, or I don't know the answer, or I don't have enough information. 
So I think it depends on what you're asking it and what you're hoping to glean. And then sometimes you say, I don't like this answer. Give me something else. So it can answer things, but is it necessarily what you want to answer? I personally, I'm sorry to say, I don't know enough yet because I've only been playing with it for a couple of months. So I don't feel comfortable putting it into my work yet. As you're playing with it, can you give us an example of where you say, hey, now this is really useful with AI. Have you seen that happen yet or not yet? Well, what AI can do is just say you wrote something, which, you know, I think for like, if you're putting up content on LinkedIn or you want to do a blog post or something like that, that's the only way I've used it, where I've written something, put it into AI, had it rewrite. Sometimes it's better, sometimes it's not. It takes a lot of the nuanced information out of your writing. It makes it a little bit more clinical. I don't know how that's going to affect the surveys. I mean, if you want them less colorful, maybe. I think it's going to depend on what you're asking and who you're asking to. Could it help you better with certain groups of people? Maybe. I just don't know. I really can't answer it because I've never used it in a survey yet but I've only used it in writing. And sometimes it's good, sometimes it's really boring. So what trends and innovations are you seeing on the horizon, aside from AI and GPT, that interest you and you think might really help or change things? I think that all of AI is going to be very revolutionary, not only in market research, but the use of you know, Dolly and Journey, you know, all the graphics tools and things that are being used. And I think that we could do some very fantastic kinds of things. But, you know, we have to walk before we're climbing mountains. I don't know how corporations going to feel about this. Are we talking about creative groups? Are we talking about people launching, you know, the latest serial? Uh, you know, it just depends on the, the group of people and how far they want to move things along. I mean, even doing what I'm doing, I get people saying that it's too out there sometimes. You know, like, wow, you show pictures. Oh, my. I've had that the entire time I've been in market research is doing it the way we do it. People say, oh, are you sure you can get results this way? It's so different. In the pharmaceutical world, they tend to be very conservative and they don't want to do some of the things that we think are best practices. But, you know, every world is very different. Sure. So if you could have a conversation over lunch or a meal with someone in the market research industry, who would it be and why? That's a very tough question for me because I don't really know a lot of my counterparts. You know, I, I obviously know people in market research, but I would much prefer to be talking to, you know, just say the CEO of Apple or something or Microsoft. I mean, I, I'm very interested in technology and I'm very interested in seeing where they're pushing the boundaries. And I think that when you see how technology can push the boundaries, it does affect the way we also look at our world and how we can push. But market research does have constraints to a certain extent. And the Department of Market Research has, I think, a tough time sometimes getting a seat at the table at companies. You know, people sometimes discount research. So how do we get more respect in terms of an industry? I think that's really much more of an interesting question where we really should have a seat at the table to help inform decisions and direction. I don't think when people have corporate meetings, they necessarily have their research team in there explaining. 
and people are shrinking research and say they don't need it and that sort of thing where I don't know how anybody shoots from the hip totally to create or change a product or move ahead. You're a market researcher and you're building a business. You're doing a lot of research and you feel so comfortable in knowing that that is a secret weapon that you have because it informs you. But some companies just go, oh, who cares? Like, let's cut back. It doesn't matter. Let's just use, you know, whatever, you know, anybody could do market research. It could be written by AI. Let's use whatever kind of survey tool. It doesn't really matter. And all that is just really not true. In recent years, there's been a shift from the term market research to insights. What do you think of this shift? And how is it different? Well, there's even human insights today. There's all kinds of, there's UX. I think we're changing the name like everybody's changing their name today. You know, companies are changing their name too. I think people get bored with terminology and they change it. But really the guts of the business is that really changed. It's just different titles. I mean, we are very interested in understanding how people behave, how they do things. You know, I came sort of up through the internet in the early days when there were still goth prompts and stuff. And so, you know, now there's zillions of websites. You know, I will go on some websites I can't even figure out what the company does. I have no idea. I'm reading everything. So really, are we doing best practices? How far have we come? I mean, it's still the Wild West. Everybody doesn't follow rules. You can't find anything. You know, if you did some research, you would understand what your user needs. It's a broken record. You just look at things and you go, you know, those people don't understand. So I don't know if titles are that important. I just think that there's practices that people do. It's like, you know, when you get your hair cut, some people really know how to cut. And even though they're a hairdresser, they don't know how to cut. What does that mean? You know, I agree. I think it's a shift in terms. I think there's one little difference, though. I think the change from market research to insights has put a little bit more emphasis on seeking insights versus just market research. And what I often tell people, you know, if you want to simplify all of this, quite honestly, what is market research or insights, right? To me, it's really structured curiosity. And that's what we're talking about. You know, just be curious, go out and learn about your customers, get a deeper understanding of them, the industry, and you will uncover insights. It's just going to happen. It's part of the process. Right. Well, curiosity is, is so important. It's observation in a way. I mean, we're just asking questions and we're observing in a sense also what people are doing, how they answered, why they answered that way. And we always ask people why after the fact, because we want to understand why, because it informs the numerical information, right? But I don't find observing people like to see if they sweat, if their eyeballs move. I don't find any of that because if you looked at me too long, I would react funny too. If you're watching me shop or I just don't get it because I'm different every time and you're putting me on the spot and I don't want to be on the spot. They're not actors. If they were actors, then actors are used to being observed because that's part of their role. But human beings, I think, you know, they'll say, oh, I'm going to buy this and shop this and do that. And then how my eyeball moved. I just don't find it. You're laughing, but there's I know what you mean. I know that. what you mean. Yeah, I know. I know. I know what you're saying. But ultimately, I think we're all basically trying to get to a deeper level of understanding the subconscious and what drives yeah. decision making. Right. And that's ultimately right. what we're trying to do is getting clarity and a view into the consumer's mind and what makes them do certain things and not do certain things. And that's, you know. We're humans, we're complex creatures, we have emotions, logic, everything. So to understand all of that, you know, it takes a little bit of art, science, and luck, of course. 
Yeah. And even, you know, there's probably other factors we don't even take into consideration, whether people took a survey in the morning, in the afternoon, if they had coffee or not. I mean, everything affects your behavior. You woke up in a good mood. You had sex with your spouse. You didn't. You're pissed off. I mean, these things will relate to what goes on. And because we want to get the most informed, best decision, you got to be open-minded in understanding and looking at the data. And that's what's so fascinating, really. Yeah, I agree. That's what keeps me engaged, too, is it's always different, always interesting, and you always learn something new, you know? That's the thing. Always. Honestly, being in this business has changed me so much. You know, I walk around the world, and I I try and hide the things that I know or see. (laughs) Yeah. You're like it's you're switched on all the time because it makes you see things and understand oh definitely things. you have a different perspective. I mean, I often feel like a plug into the jet stream of society because you can really see these ebbs and flows of what's really happening. It's just very fascinating. It is one of the reasons I enjoy it as well. Yeah, it's definitely giving you a, a special lens, and you're either addicted to it or you're not. <laughs> That's yeah. true. That's true. Well, listen, yeah, it's been a pleasure talking to you. I really appreciate you joining me on the podcast. Thank you very much, and I wish you well with your continued success with market research in the corporate environment as well as legal and also with your software. I look forward to having continued conversations with you. Super. Okay, Thank see you. you soon. Bye. Getting to AHA was brought to you by iResearch. To find out more about us, head to iResearch.com and make sure to search for Getting to AHA in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and anywhere else podcasts are found. And don't forget to click follow to ensure you don't miss any future episodes. Thank you for listening.